Welcome, listeners, to the next episode of They Didn't Teach That at School. My name is Mark Kerrigan, and the theory behind this podcast is to uncover some of the amazing, fascinating, and quirky things that have occurred throughout history that they didn't teach you at school. Our first 10 podcasts are going to focus on the Bible, and we are going to discover some incredible things that you probably didn't know. In today's episode, we are going to look at the various flood mythologies from some of the world's religions. Floods have been part of human history since time immemorial, and across different civilizations and religions, we find remarkable stories of deluges that reshaped entire landscapes and changed the course of humanity. In fact, of all the countries in the world, Japan stands out as one of the very few major cultures that do not have a flood myth. The Hebrew flood myth that focuses on Noah and his ark is probably one of the best known ones. However, cultures across the world, including those in Mesopotamia, India, Africa, China, and Mesoamerica all have stories of life-shattering inundations. While the details may differ, the core elements of a catastrophic flood, a chosen hero, the construction of an ark or a vessel, and the survival and repopulation of the earth are remarkably similar across these cultures. How did this happen? How did cultures, separated by time and distance, all develop remarkably similar tales? We're going to investigate to see if we can find out. Let's begin our journey with starting with the flood myth known throughout most of the Western world, the Jewish flood myth of Noah's Ark. Is it just a story or is it a piece of history? Let's unravel this together. So, why are we focusing first on the Jewish version of the flood myth? Flood stories, after all, are ubiquitous across many cultures. Well, the answer is twofold. The Jewish flood myth, also known as Noah's Ark or the Great Deluge, forms a critical narrative in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And secondly, because it has been so influential in Western culture, thanks to its position in the Christian Old Testament. Our journey starts with the book of Genesis, chapters 6 to 9. Here, the story of the flood is told in a fascinating narrative format. But before we dive into that narrative, let's provide some context. The Genesis account describes a world immersed in moral decay and divine disappointment. Humanity has strayed far from its creator, prompting God to take drastic measures. He decides to wash the earth clean of its moral corruption. However, one man stands out with his righteousness, Noah. Noah finds favour in God's eyes, and thus the story of survival begins. The story goes that God speaks to Noah, instructing him to build an ark. The ark's dimensions, as specified in cubits, translates approximately to 137 metres long, 23 metres wide, and 14 metres high in modern measurements. A massive structure indeed. Noah is to build this ark from gopher wood, a term whose exact meaning is lost in antiquity, but is generally agreed upon as some form of resilient timber. The ark is to be filled with all pairs of living creatures, one male, one female, to repopulate the earth after the flood. The specified creatures encompass all forms of terrestrial life, from the humblest insects to the mightiest beast. In addition, Noah is to store enough food for his family and the animals. The flood arrives, not just in the form of ceaseless rain, but also from the foundations of the deep, suggesting subterranean waters burst forth as well. The earth is deluged for 40 days and nights, and every living creature not aboard the ark 
perishes. Eventually, the waters recede. The ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. While the Bible does not specifically name Mount Ararat as the landing place of the ark, it has become associated with the story. Several expeditions have been launched to find the ark's remains on Mount Ararat, but no physical evidence has been found. Noah sends out a raven, and then a dove, to test whether the land has dried. When the dove finally returns with an olive leaf, Noah knows that the terrestrial world is recovering. Upon leaving the ark, Noah builds an altar to God. In response to Noah's devotion, God makes a covenant. Never again will he destroy the earth with a flood. The sign of this covenant is the rainbow, a symbol still recognised today. Despite its presence in religious scripture, many interpret the Jewish flood myth allegorically, not literally. It symbolises themes of divine judgement and mercy, human corruption and purification, among others. It is also worth mentioning the striking similarities between this account and other ancient flood narratives, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh. These shared stories suggest a potential common cultural memory, perhaps of a significant prehistoric flood event. Remarkably, three life-size replicas of Noel's Ark have been built. One in the Netherlands, one in Hong Kong, and the last in Kentucky, United States. All three are part of a creationist theme park, aimed to provide a visual interpretation of the biblical descriptions. The Dutch Ark actually floats and can be towed around by barges, while in Hong Kong, visitors often see actors playing the Holy Family running through the park, pursued by Roman legionnaires. So, is Noah's Ark myth or history? The answer isn't straightforward. It's a blend of religious belief, cultural memory, and literary tradition. Regardless, the Jewish flood myth's legacy cannot be denied is left an indelible imprint on our shared cultural and literary landscape. Our next stop is nearby Mesopotamia, roughly 500 to 1,000 years earlier, where the ancient Sumerians told a tale of an epic flood. Mesopotamia, which is roughly present-day Iraq, is considered one of the world's earliest advanced civilizations. The Sumerians... Mesopotamians' first advanced inhabitants left us a treasure trove of cuneiform tablets bearing the earliest known form of writing. One such tablet, known as the Eridu Genesis, is our guide for today's journey. The Eridu Genesis, although incomplete, offers an intriguing story. Our hero isn't Noah, but rather Zaya Sudra, a pious king. Just like in the Hebrew Bible, Zaya Sudra's tale involves divine foresight an ark, and a catastrophic flood. But there are subtle differences that make this story unique. In this narrative, the gods had created humanity to labour for them, to cultivate the earth, and to provide them with food through sacrifices. However, humanity multiplied and became too noisy, disturbing the gods' peace. Thus, the Council of Gods, led by Enlil, the god of the earth, wind, and air, decided to wipe out mankind with a flood, as you do. However, Enki, the god of water and wisdom, who had a fondness for humanity, revealed the plan to a man named Zayasudra in a dream. Enki instructed Zayasudra to build a great boat, although unlike in the biblical account, the specific dimensions or materials of this boat are not described. Zayasudra heeded the dream's warning, built the boat and loaded it with his family, craftsmen, the seed of all living creatures and precious metals and stones. 
When the flood came, it was more than just rain. The flood roared like a bull, like wild ass screaming, the winds bellowing. The flood was a monstrous force that lasted for seven days and seven nights. Finally, when the flood subsided, Zayasudra opened a window, letting the sunlight enter, and he prostrated himself before the sun god Utu. He sacrificed an ox and a sheep on the peak of Mount Nasir, where the boat came to rest. In response, the gods bestowed immortality upon Zayasudra and his wife, and they were taken to live in Dilmun, a paradisiacal land. So, unlike Noah, Zayasudra's story ends not with a rainbow and a covenant, but with an elevation to quasi-divine status. Scholars see in the Sumerian flood myth an allegory for humanity's precarious position amid nature's might and the whim of the gods. However, some also suggest that these stories may have their roots in the memory of actual severe floods that plagued Mesopotamia, given its position between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The Sumerian flood myth, along with its later Babylonian counterpart featuring the hero Upnapishtim in the Epic of Gilgamesh, are remarkable for their antiquity and for the insight they provide into the beliefs and concerns of humanity's earliest civilizations. While we're still in Mesopotamia, let's move forward 700 odd years in time to 2100 BCE and our old friends, the Babylonians. The Babylonian flood myth is part of the wider Babylonian flood mythos, which also includes stories from the Sumerians and the Akkadians. But the Babylonian version is perhaps the most famous of them all, owing to its inclusion in the Epic of Gilgamesh. This epic is the earliest surviving great work of literature. The flood myth contained within the Epic of Gilgamesh has had a lasting impact on literature and religious thought throughout the millennia, and parallels can be found in flood narratives across many different cultures, including the biblical story of Noah. The Babylonian flood myth is contained in Tablet 11 of the Epic of Gilgamesh, where the hero Gilgamesh meets an immortal man named Upnapishtim, and Upnapishtim tells a remarkable story. He recounts how the god E warned him of an impending flood, instructing him to build a boat to save his family, craftsmen and various animals. Upnapishtim obeys, and when the flood arrives, it is brutal. The gods are even said to be afraid of the destruction they've unleashed. For seven days and nights, the storm rages on, and when it finally recedes, Upnapishtim sends out a dove, a swallow and a raven to find land. When the raven fails to return, he knows that the waters have receded enough for them to disembark. Upnapishtim then offers sacrifices to the gods. Upon smelling the sweet scent of the sacrifices, the god Enlil, who had initially decided to send the flood, is moved. He gifts Upnapishtim and his wife with immortality, hence the reason he could share this tale with Gilgamesh. This ancient story, preserved in clay tablets, has been a subject of fascination for scholars, historians and even theologians. It raises profound questions about humanity's relationship with the divine, the consequences of our actions, and the delicate balance of life and death, punishment and redemption. Over the centuries, we see a ripple effect of this narrative. The Babylonian myth echoes in many other flood narratives worldwide, such as the biblical tale of Noah, the Hindu story of Manu, and even the Greek story of Deucalion and Pyrrha. Let's continue our journey eastward, and visit the ancient civilization of Greece. 
To fully appreciate this story, we must first set the stage. The world was young, mankind was newer still, and the immortal gods looked down upon their creation from high atop Mount Olympus. It was a time when gods walked among men, and men tried to challenge the gods. Zeus, the king of the gods, weary of mankind's disrespect and impiety, decided to wipe out humanity with a great deluge, a catastrophic flood. But Prometheus, the god who had given humans the gift of fire, and considered their protector, saw this coming. He warned his son, Deucalion, about the impending disaster. With his wife, Pyrrha, by his side, Deucalion constructed an ark, not unlike the biblical tale of Noah's ark. When the rain began to pour down and the oceans claimed the land, it was this vessel that saved Deucalion and Pyrrha from the great deluge. Days turned into weeks and weeks into months, until finally the rain ceased, and Deucalion's ark rested upon the peak of Mount Parnassus. They were the last man and woman left on earth. The once populated world was silent, devoid of life and laughter. A blank canvas. Their survival was bittersweet, as the responsibility of repopulating the earth now fell onto them. But how? Pyrrha was distraught, believing they were too old and the task too great. But Deucalion, ever the optimist, reminded her of an ancient oracle's riddle that said they could cast the bones of their mother to bring back life. Initially this puzzled them, but Deucalion had a spark of insight. The mother, the oracle referred to, was not a person, but Mother Earth herself. And her bones? Probably stones, the solid bones of the Earth. They began to throw bones over their shoulders. Deucalions turned into men and Pyrrhas into women. In this way, they repopulated the world. Probably much to Pyrrha's relief. Continuing our eastward journey, we now find ourselves in ancient India to discover the mesmerising narrative of Manu, the great progenitor of mankind in Hindu mythology. The story of Manu, also known as the Manu flood myth, is an essential part of Hindu scriptures, primarily found in the Sapathata Brahmana and the Matsuyu Purana. Manu, often compared to Noah from the biblical tradition or the Sumerian Zuisdra, is considered the progenitor of humankind and the ruler of the post-deluded world. This tale begins when Manu, while performing ablutions, finds a tiny fish in his water. The fish pleads for protection from larger creatures of the river, promising to save Manu from an impending great flood in return. Intrigued and compassionate, Manu transfers the fish to a pot, but the fish begins to grow rapidly, outgrowing the pot, then a well, and eventually a river. The fish reveals itself to be the first avatar of Lord Vishnu, known as Matsya, the fish. Grateful for Manu's kindness, Matsya informs him of an impending flood that will wipe out all life on Earth. Manu is instructed to build a giant ship and fill it with the seeds of plants, pairs of animals, and seven sages, or rishis, who are the mind-born sons of the creator god Brahma. Manu does as instructed and ties the ship to the fish with a massive serpent, much like a rope. As the flood engulfs the world, Manu navigates through the turbulent waters, guided by Matsya. Finally, the waters start to receive. Manu's ship lands on the peak of Mount Himavan. Manu, being the only surviving human, takes the responsibility of population and preservation of life. Thus, he becomes the progenitor of post-deluge mankind. Like other flood myths, the tale of Manu is more than a mere survival story. It embodies deeper philosophical meanings. 
The small fish, Matsya, is a symbol of the first glimmer of spiritual insight, which, when nurtured, grows to guide one through life's turbulent floods. The story is an allegorical tale of survival, wisdom, faith, and the cyclical nature of creation and destruction. Moreover, in the context of Indian culture, Manu's significance transcends the flood myth. The Manu Smriti, or Laws of Manu, is traditionally believed to have been authored by him, outlining the societal and moral code of conduct, making Manu not just a saviour, but a lawgiver. So whether Manu's tale is myth or history, or a blend of both, its moral and philosophical significance in the tapestry of Hindu mythology remains undiminished. We're going to pause our eastward journey for a moment and set a course southwest and venture into the heart of East Africa, exploring the intriguing flood myth of the Maasai people. The Maasai, known for their vibrant culture and deep connection to the land, tell a fascinating tale of a great flood that swept across the earth. The Maasai flood myth began with the god Enkei, the central deity of the Maasai, who watches over both humans and nature. According to the myth, Enkei became displeased with humanity's corruption and wrongdoing, and decided to send a flood to cleanse the earth. A prophet named Nambaja, who had found favour with Enkei, was warned of the impending flood. He was instructed to build a vessel to save his family and every pair of animals. After the floodwaters receded, Nambaja offered a sacrifice to Enkei and life began anew. While there are striking similarities to other global flood myths, what sets the Maasai flood myth apart is its emphasis on moral integrity and the intimate connection between humanity, nature and the divine. The myth serves as a lesson in living in harmony with the natural world and maintaining a virtuous life. Fast forwarding to the present, scholars have found that the Maasai flood myth continues to resonate deeply with the community today. It emphasises values such as respect for nature, community cohesion and spiritual purity. The Maasai's sustainable way of life, their rituals and even their traditional attire are all connected to this foundational myth. Resuming our eastward journey, we come across the classic story of Gun and Yu. In ancient Chinese lore, Gun was tasked by Emperor Yao to control the flooding that was devastating the land. Gun chose to steal the magical soil from heaven to build dams. However, his approach failed and led to his execution by the Emperor Shun. His son, Yu the Great, learned from his father's mistakes and took a different approach. Instead of opposing nature, he chose to work with it. Seems like Yu had an almost scientific or engineering mindset. He didn't see nature as something to dominate, but rather a system to understand. Yu the Great spent years surveying the land and decided that the best course of action was to dredge new river channels, facilitating natural drainage of the floodwaters. His wisdom lay in the concept of Wu Wei, the philosophy of doing by not doing, of acting in accordance with nature. These myths aren't merely stories. They've shaped real-world policies and practices. Yu the Great is considered the founder of the Xia dynasty, which, if existed, was China's first dynasty, and his wisdom has been invoked in current-day policies about water management and harmony with nature. All right, stand by to make sail. Lay aloft and loose topgallants. Clear away the jib. We're about to travel 9,500 kilometres over the Pacific Ocean to the islands of Hawaii. In this story, the deity Cain, one of the four major Hawaiian gods, 
and the procreator who created all life forms became disappointed with the behaviour of humans. Their lack of respect and utter disobedience angered him. To cleanse the world of their wickedness, he decided to send a great flood. However, he didn't want all life to perish, so he appeared to Nu in a dream and commanded him to build a large canoe to save himself, his family, and every pair of living creatures. Nu, faithful and obedient, heeded the divine message and acted accordingly. As foretold, the heavens opened, poured down relentless torrential rain, submerging the land. Yet amidst this chaos, Nu, his family, and the animals remained safe in the great canoe, riding the stormy waves. The waters eventually receded, and the ark was found resting on the top of Mount Kea, the tallest mountain in Hawaii. When Nu stepped onto dry land, he offered a sacrifice to Cain. In response, a rainbow appeared in the sky, a sign of Cain's forgiveness and a promise that life could remain anew. There are more flood narratives, but I think it's time to have a look at how a common theme was spread across the globe thousands of years ago. The connections between these flood myths from various civilizations are undeniably fascinating. While the details may differ, the core elements of a catastrophic flood, a chosen hero, the construction of an ark or a vessel, and the survival and repopulation of the earth are remarkably similar across all these cultures. The flood myths seem to reflect a universal human fascination with the enduring themes of destruction, survival, and rebirth. The connections between the flood myths of different civilizations can often be traced back to shared cultural influences, cross-pollination of ideas through trade routes or even migration patterns. It is plausible that, as civilizations interacted and traded goods, they also exchanged stories and legends, leading the transmission and adaptation of flood myths. The Hawaiian Islands, however, are remote and isolated, which raises questions about how their flood myth aligns with those of other civilizations. However, oral traditions and mythologies can be surprisingly resilient and can endure even in the absence of direct contact with other cultures. It's possible that the Hawaiian flood myth emerged independently or was influenced by seafaring Polynesian cultures that settled in the Pacific. Throughout history, natural disasters have often been interpreted throughout religious lenses, and interestingly, this continues into modern times. When major natural disasters occur, some religious leaders or believers interpret them as signs, punishment, or messages from a higher power. A few examples from recent history are Hurricane Katrina from 2005. After this devastating hurricane hit the Gulf Coast of the United States, some religious figures claimed it was a punishment from God for the sins of the people, particularly pointing to the perceived decadence of New Orleans. In the 2010 Haiti earthquake, a few religious leaders suggested that the disaster was a result of a pact with the devil that the Haitians had supposedly made to gain their independence from France in the 19th century. A tsunami in the Indian Ocean in 2004 affected multiple countries around the Indian Ocean, and some religious figures in the affected area interpreted the disaster as divine retribution for various perceived sins or moral failings. And even the COVID pandemic. This global pandemic has been interpreted by some religious figures and believers as a sign or punishment from God. The reasons given vary, ranging from humanity's general moral decay to specific issues like abortion, secularism, or other perceived societal sins. The San Francisco earthquake in 2006, 
After the devastating earthquake in San Francisco, some religious figures claimed it was punishment from God for the city's perceived sins and moral decay. And finally, the Nepal earthquake of 2015. After this earthquake, some Hindu priests and believers saw the disaster as a result of human actions angering the gods, pointing to various potential causes from moral decay to specific events like the blood sacrifice ban in the Ganamei festival. It is important to note that these interpretations are not universally accepted within religious communities. Many religious leaders and believers reject the ideas that specific natural disasters are divine punishments and instead emphasise compassion, aid and rebuilding in the aftermath of such events. Furthermore, while some individuals or religious groups might use natural disasters to promote a particular religious dogma, many others within the same religious tradition might vehemently disagree with these interpretations. As with many issues, there is a wide range of beliefs and interpretations within any community. So, in wrapping up our deep dive into flood myths and the divine deluge of retribution, it's clear that humanity has a long-standing tradition of getting on Mother Nature, or perhaps the gods, naughty list. From the ancient tales to modern tempests, it seems we're perpetually in some deities' bad books. But whether you view these watery woes as a divine dishwasher cycle, cosmic timeouts, or just plain old plate tectonics, one thing's for sure. When the heavens open up, humans can't help but look for a heavenly message. So the next time you forget your umbrella, just remember, it might not be rain. It could be divine feedback. Stay dry, listeners, and keep pondering those celestial signals. We've come to the end of Episode 7 of They Didn't Teach That at School. Once again, thank you for listening to my ramble through the various flood myths of ancient civilizations. Don't forget to tune into my next podcast when we're going to look at various religious views of the origin of mankind. Adam and Eve is one of the most well-known origin stories, but do we really know what was written about them? Also, if you're interested, don't forget to check out my first novel, The Fisher Union, out now on Amazon's Kindle. I hope you've enjoyed this dive into ancient history and the quirky details that make it so intriguing. Stay curious, keep exploring, and remember, there's always more to learn. I'm Mark Kerry. See you next time on They Didn't Teach That at School.